this intro to welcome you to the first official installment of a new series from Backlash Worldwide Inc. Last month, I published episode 36 of Here Comes the Backlash, featuring Nick Petoskey. I've been following Nick's work for nearly two years, and I was really thrilled and truly honored to have such a distinguished guest. Nick is something of a historian or anthropologist, definitely an expert on the subject of medical histories of the HIV AIDS crisis. In that episode, Nick walked us through his thoroughly researched HIV AIDS timeline, which documents a secret history of some of the very dark corners of what we now call the science TM, but perhaps might be better described as the intersection between the military industrial complex and the field of medicine. Nick presents thoroughly documented evidence of scientific research into techniques for creating deadly AIDS-like viruses in the decades immediately preceding the HIV epidemic. These 1960s to 1970s era projects were conducted internationally and funded through confluence of state, academic, and NGO actors, often under the guise of top-secret, quote-unquote, special cancer virus research. These scientists and their funders would later pivot towards expertise of the looming AIDS crisis of the 1980s. Because these elite-tier scientific institutions have maintained a tight grip on the official AIDS origin narratives and timelines, it's only right that their potential involvement in its creation ought to be interrogated. If you haven't tuned into episode 36, I definitely encourage you to do so, either before or after this episode. In that conversation, Nick allowed me to pick his brain with some really pointed questions, and despite the heavy subject matter, it was actually a great joy to speak with him. The response to the episode has been tremendous. For the first time, it kind of felt like I was actually successful in getting people to not only look beyond the official AIDS narrative, but beyond the Duesberg aspect of it as well, to some of the underlying networks and science behind the AIDS-HIV crisis. Now, I knew that wouldn't be the end of the St. Nick Poolhouse Alliance, because after all, we are going to sit down together and one day very soon interview Dr. Judy Mikovits. It's simply a predestined fact, but I didn't expect Nick to reach out so soon after we dropped the episode, but I couldn't be more pleased. After all, Nick is a time-traveling space cat, and I'm a time-traveling disco shock jog, so it makes perfect sense that we'd partner up on this very critical mission that we have accepted. Poolhouse and Nick are coming to correct the timeline. Beneath the mountains of distortion, censorship, and propaganda that has been leveraged to gaslight and manipulate the public's perception about the AIDS crisis, there exist very real truths, real experiences lived by real people whose stories contradict the official timeline provided to us by the NIH, CDC, and other state actors. For too long, these eyewitnesses to the early days of the AIDS crisis have been suppressed, slandered, and silenced, but that all stops now. I'm calling this series The Unsilencing, and our objective is to bring some of these stories to light, to reverse the curse of scientific censorship that's become a literal plague upon our planet. To echo Dr. Brankovitz, this is our way of saying no thank you to the scientific establishment that has only been able to maintain a stranglehold on the consensus around the AIDS narrative through draconian and often violent means. You can call it historical revisionism, I don't care, because some histories need to be revised. Histories that are effectively part of a criminal cover-up authored by the very criminals themselves must be challenged. 
This is one of the first of three conversations planned to launch this series, and we'll see what kind of trouble Nick and I can get up to from there. Tonight, you're going to meet Ed, an eyewitness to the early days of the HIV AIDS crisis, whose story will fascinate anybody with an interest in these topics. The word survivor gets thrown around a lot, and I feel like it's often misapplied. Some people are only survivors on a technicality. In reality, they just got lucky. But in my opinion, Ed is a true survivor. I was moved by his stories because what shined through was an incredible sense of self and self-determination and ability to harness his will so that he could persist. I couldn't be more pleased to be part of sharing his story with you and the rest of my audience. Ed and I are probably pretty different politically, but as I often say, politics are just external symptoms, and what really matters is the heart and the spirit that moves someone to subscribe to certain beliefs. Ed has heart, spirit, and a healthy heaping of charm and spades, and all of that no doubt gave him this grit and tenacity that it made it impossible for him to be here with us today. So I encourage listeners to really pay attention to Ed and his stories and really the world he describes. The official timeline is not the only historical aspect that's being challenged. Think about the perceptions you have of the time and, and the AIDS crisis in general and how his uh, anecdotes and stories maybe challenge that. We're going to get into it in this episode, but while HIV and COVID-19 are very different in many ways, I couldn't help but be continuously comparing the two at a systemic level, especially in particular, I think the ways that fear and emotion have been weaponized in order to coerce populations into achieving specific outcomes. After all, how many of us were asked, is it safe to have him in the house over the holidays during the height of the pandemic? I just, well, I'm just going to I really want to thank my partner in crime, Nick, for bringing Ed's story to me and for trusting me to help bring the story to all of you. I have a lot of respect and admiration for Nick and his work, and I'm very touched and honored to be a part of this. And honestly, this feels like some of the most important work I've produced to date. We recorded this episode on Friday, September 29th, 2023. It was a really moving experience, and I realized I needed to put some distance between the experience that we all shared that evening before I turned it into a product that I could share with all of you. Despite being a huge homo myself, it's no secret that I often find friction with the quote-unquote gay community, and I don't have a lot of gay friends. And also, you know, the fact that many homosexual men of the previous generation were obliterated by this crisis— it just made it easy for the claims of the rightful claims to the AIDS narrative to be held by only a precious few. Just the act of getting to sit with two older brothers I never had and speak openly about these topics was really powerful and fortifying. I came away from this conversation stronger, more determined, and with a reaffirmed sense of purpose. And that's all thanks to these two incredible gentlemen that I had the pleasure of sharing a couple hours with. And now, thanks to the magical properties of technology, I'm able to share just a slightly modified pool house version of that experience with all of you. I hope you get something out of Ed's story and from the other episodes we've got planned. So we're going to go back in time to the beginning of Ed's story, which honestly starts in a rather unlikely place. So let's get inside the DeLorean and get buckled in. This is Backlash, the unsilencing.
uh, yeah, leverages. I don't know what to expect, to be totally honest with, with both of you. I'm really curious. I'm really excited. And I know it's going to be very uh, interesting and, and rewarding, you know? Um, so, yeah, I was thinking we could keep it casual. I, I definitely, I guess I don't know where yes. to start. Okay. My story of uh, being <laughs> blasted with HIV uh, and a death started mm -hmm. in 1979 in my hometown. Okay, that's so that yeah, that's that's exactly where we should begin. And um, please bring us back to um, where this all started for you. Um, it was the summer of 1979. And I was living in Wichita, Kansas, my hometown. Um, and I had a group of friends, of course, I, I was out of the closet by then. So they were all gay friends. And um, one of our friends was in the hospital. And so a group of us said, let's, let's go see him because we don't know what's going on. And there had been, you know, the whispers of something, you know, that gay men were getting. And, and I'm saying this is 79, before when they truly recognized this as you know, what it is today, HIV. So three of us went to the hospital and only two of us were allowed in. But at that time, sorry, uh, it is a little emotional. Uh, didn't think that would happen. Um, so we went to the hospital and of course, they weren't prepared, so there was really no isolation wing or anything like that at the time. Um, but they had, you know, sectioned off like six rooms at the end of the hallway. And before we could enter, we had to put on hazmat suits, take off our shoes, put on their boots and shoes, rubber gloves. I mean, it was like hazmat decontamination room that we had to go through completely covered and walking into the room and seeing my friend lying there barely being able to breathe and just pale covered with KS um, and attempting to talk to him. And he was barely able to speak because he was, it was only a few days after this visit that he did pass away. Um, but we were limited. They, of course, they did not know anything. So visitation was extremely limited. Um, the third friend was not allowed in. There were only two of us that were allowed in. But we spent as much time with him as we could. And a nurse was there in attendance as well. And even though we were rubber gloved, hazmat, everything, we weren't even allowed to touch him or to hold his hand. 
And that's where I first got slammed with this horrific disease that later just engulfed our community. I want to take a moment to um, to thank you for your compassion and to recognize and acknowledge the difficulty that our community faced, that you faced in that moment and with uh, your other friends. And I don't want to um, move us into a state of, of PTSD or despair about this. Even all these years later, the loss and the cost of those moments and particularly the lives that were cut short, just all of the life, all of the light um, that was extinguished is still very, very difficult uh, for yes. many of us to bear who, who were there. And particularly for those of us who who lost people that we can still say the names and we for some of us can remember these moments, they're visceral, they're burned in our minds. And what has just transpired in the last three and a half years, I'm sure for many from the generation are very difficult correlations. It's it's bringing stuff back. Um, And there was a whole lot of in the press. Um, I'm sure that none of us that experienced the original wave and the losses in HIV AIDS wanted this for the world. We didn't want another tragedy to be set mankind so that the truth about AIDS could be known. It's a very difficult, unfortunate resonance between the two different events. So coming back to the period, it's 1979 and you are saying goodbye to a friend who has gone through a rapid um, disease onset and presentation and um, is now fighting um, for for their survival. Do you recall in even a general sense of about how long this friend was really um, feeling sick and starting to have trouble or did they kind of disappear for a while and then they came back and friends said, hey, you know, our, our buddy is ill. What was happening that you can recall um, around the community around him? Well, he, he was he was a buddy that we all hung out with and I was the summer I turned 18. Um, and prior to that, I, I'd been out since I was 15. So, you know, we weren't allowed in clubs or anything like that, even though we were, we had fake IDs. Uh, but back then was completely different too in the club scene because the bouncers knew we were underage and they knew we had fake IDs. But, you know, they wanted us to have a safe place and they understood how to protect gay youth, you know, us young guys coming out and, you know, making sure we were safe when we went into the clubs, even though they knew we were underage, they watched out for us. And other than that, we had a big park uh, that was the gay park in Wichita. And we all just would, you know, spend the afternoon hanging out, uh, with with each other, the largest number in our group was probably about 25 people. And this person in particular who I went to the hospital to see that passed, he was a part of that group. So to go back to your question, we hung out, 
we all had a great time. He had mentioned that he wasn't feeling so great. And then, yes, in essence, he just disappeared. And we hadn't heard or seen from him in quite a while. And then somebody said, oh, I just heard that he's in the hospital. And that's when we collected the group uh, of, you know, who had the nerve uh, or the courage at that time to go see our friend. Um, so yeah, he it was more of just like a vanishing. And, you know, he didn't, you know, it was probably a year and a half uh, that we didn't see him before we saw him in the hospital. So I would say the progression was probably within two years time between him actually getting sick and dying. So that would mean that he was probably positive in 76 or 77. Okay. Do you, do you by chance know, did he travel? Did he go to, most importantly, did he go to New York? Yes. He, he, he was, he did like to travel. He, you know, okay. he, he was Chicago and New York was where he liked to travel. Okay. So Poolhouse, I'm coming back to our discussion about the very academic and uh, we'll have to remain very clinical evidence about a timeline of um, the intersection of vaccine experiments in the gay population and then the presentation of immune suppression and all of the different opportunistic infections that come along with HIV disease. I want to emphasize we did see evidence and it's cited by not only Dr. Smunas, who ran the 1978 New York chapter of the big national hepatitis uh, study. Uh, he cites activities performed by uh, Dr. Maurice Hilleman, and Merck, and they had an earlier hepatitis experiment in gay in a gay cohort in New York City uh, that would have been administered probably in seventy three or seventy four, and then the surveillance window, as they discuss it in the literature, ran for twenty four months. So that's where we saw that they said that after two years, Ed, they said, uh, quote unquote, uh, over 50 percent of the cohort could not be located. That was their language for they weren't around anymore. We couldn't locate them. So another important piece of this that ties together with the clinical evidence is that the retroactive blood uh, studies, the testing of blood that was stored from men who were in that hepatitis study because they got a blood draw several times from the beginning to the end of the whole process. And those archives were available. And when they were tested for HIV in the, I'd say at about 86, 87, I think is when that, that uh, work really went through. They found that a, a very small percentage of the men who had qualified for the study actually showed HIV antibodies. I think they said it was uh, with a, a margin of about two or 3% error. They said it was about three or 4% 
had HIV antibodies. This would have been relative in both time and I guess more of a slow exposure and spread of sexual communication of HIV from that original New York study in the mid 70s, which clearly, according to the literature, looks as though it, it really was very deadly and very rapid for most of the, of the men who got the live shot, the hot shot. Uh, but yeah. some of them apparently communicated that and there was some small level of HIV in the community um, when the, the big NAIAD Heptavac study fired up in 1977. Yes. I have a question actually on this timeline. Annette, I just want to say thank you so much, yeah, for sharing for sharing this. It's hard for me to be anonymous during this. Uh it's, it's not my nature to be honest. So hearing this story, like I I want to send you like uh, like all the cues I can to be like, oh my gosh, I, I feel for you. I feel very moved by already what you've shared here. And I have some questions on this timeline. Actually, first of all, it's interesting to me that we're talking about Wichita, which is about Kansas in 1979, because I put the kind of official narrative, you know, is uh like New York, LA, San Francisco, it's the age. I mean, you mentioned that, uh, well, actually have two questions on this. Uh, I guess you mentioned that there were kind of whispers, or there was a, a rumor or something about like, uh, tell me a little bit about that. Like what was going on in the community that was, what were people saying was uh, going on? And do you have any recollections around that? Uh, uh, honestly, that year, uh, just by coincidence, there was an article in the newspaper in Wichita. Um, I think it was, I can't remember the name of the, the newspaper in Wichita, but there was like a two column article about new disease, gay cancer. And I don't remember exactly what the article said, but it was, you know, one of those obscure last pages and of course, you know, it was only us in the gay community who, you know, one, somebody found it and then it's like, wow, uh, they're actually already writing about this before 1980. And, you know, and like what you said, you know, this is the center of the USA, uh, a place where no one thought that this would be even remotely a place where this could be contracted, you know. This is the original report for the MMWR that and the band played on, uh, you know, the movie, the book, the CDC, certainly the NIH, and everyone tries to put a deep, deep pushpin, a, a nail um, in this date to essentially uh, overwrite history and we are we are speaking now with someone who was in a non-major gay metro right wichita kansas was not um you know they didn't have the spike or the saint in wichita kansas mm -hmm. in 1979 mm -hmm. um so uh and what what ed has just shared about um even local press we're not talking about conversations from a doctor to a doctor or a doctor to the CDC. We're talking about an awareness of emerging disease in the gay community that's already made it clearly into local reporters. So mm -hmm. uh, very important to show the discontinuity 
in what the establishment wants the public to think. And they have a beautiful HIV timeline. It's very media rich. <laughs> it's got all kinds of, uh, you know, all of the, it's a great rerun for those of us that watched it happen in, in the news, um, along with all of the other events that we experienced in our lives uh, that were contrary to that narrative. So I think it's just important to see, you know, what, what the establishment wants us to believe compared to what an eyewitness is telling us today. A hundred percent. And I, I want to find this Wichita article from 79. I'll be looking through the, the archives later this weekend. It's interesting to me that you had this kind of solemn responsibility. You had to go uh, see a dying friend, which is very difficult. And to make matters worse, it, it, you use the word hazmat. It sounds like it was just a real a scene out of like the hot zone, like this very like uh, very secure and very scary and intimidating process. Did they explain what that was about? Because that is really surprising, especially given that this is you know before they really have uh, said what's going on or even admitted anything's going on. Do you, do you have any recollection around that? Well, that was pretty much the um, explanation from the nurses in the hospital was. We have no idea what this is. We have no idea if it's contagious through air or anything else. So this is how we have set up this area of the hospital. And it's at this time, the only way we feel safe at allowing anyone to see a patient in this part of the wing. So they didn't even really know. They just knew. And I, you know, from, from what I recall, he wasn't he wasn't the only one. I like I said, I think there were like four rooms at the end of the hallway, and he was in one of them. And it was, it was, they had taped off the hallway. Of course, this is a hospital, you know, that was built in the 40s or 50s. So it was, you know like an asylum it was tiled all the way up the walls you had to walk through like these big plastic drapes and they sealed them shut behind you and um after you were in that room completely dressed then they misted us with something and then they opened the second set of plastic curtains and let us go to the room so it was, to their knowledge, they didn't know themselves what it was. It was just something they had never seen before. And, you know, as I said, the precautions were, you know, what we know now. And even then, I thought, were just extreme that I like it. And I know I'm repeating myself, but, you know, that even though we were completely, you know, dressed that we weren't even allowed to hold his hand i'm sorry and um both poolhouse and i ed um are as you have uh, much more than um some kind of a passing sentimental involvement with this it's very 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 important and um anything about this if anything occurs to you for um, people that are listening today. And I'm thinking about not just uh, the superset of all humanity and whatever we have just encountered with 
um, the COVID vaccine and the side effects that are now manifesting and the all-cause mortality and all of that. I'm also thinking about our brothers who lined up very quickly to take a monkeypox vaccine. In the middle of that, they pulled another one and got a huge number. You know, we saw the footage of them lining up around the block. Um, I I want to invite you to also just just opine and and share um, anything about the similarities between the eras um, that you think might be beneficial. Um, so just just we'll put that vegetable in the pot and and uh, let it stew for a bit. Um, I, I will say that I did go and get the the monkeypox vaccines. Um, you know, because of me being HIV positive um, and not knowing the true risk and uh, something, you, I don't know if you can edit it out or if you want it in here or not. My partner is in the medical field and um, it um, their company uh, in the beginning of COVID, they were the first to discover uh, the markers for COVID, and in their la- in their private laboratories, and how they found the markers so quick is they started to identify the rapid onset of you know what happened with HIV being very similar to what was happening with COVID. And so they went in and actually the closest thing they found was SARS. And by testing SARS against what they could find in the antibodies of people who had tested positive for COVID, there was a lineage between SARS and COVID. And Mm -hmm. that's how their company was able to come up with the first test to identify that a person was positive for COVID. Bull House, any thoughts? I have a lot of of thoughts. Uh, I think I, a lot of my interest in this topic kind of was brought back because of what we, you know, we lived through there um, and you expressing that you got the monkeypox vaccine because of, you know, an immunocompromised status makes perfect sense because that's exactly what the messaging was, exactly what the the story was. And I was a young boy in the 80s. I was born in the very early 80s. So I grew up in kind of the shadow of a lot of the, the messaging and the narratives around this. There was a lot of fear when I grew up and I, I didn't realize until I was an adult until the last few years how much of that I had actually internalized in my own life it, it, it obviously it affects me in a different way or it informs my life in a different way having been younger i guess what i'm trying to say is i don't see a separation between these two kind of events in many ways i see them as very much the same thing i have, I have a lot of empathy i have a lot of understanding for like for your position where you're at right now you know well you know i i'll just throw this in as sort of my personal take is you know the baseline similarities to me from and this is my personal perception, is that we are dealing with viruses that, for whatever reason, I'll leave it at that, somebody decided to toy with and somehow got released into the population. HIV was a little more specific. 
as you know, COVID was not. It was broad spectrum, anyone, um, which was much different. But the rapid spread, um, you know, and how it affected people so quickly, you know, and also, you know, like the respiratory stuff, uh, because some of the early things with HIV was, you know, uh, also myself and just jumping the timeline in 1995 when I was living in Los Angeles and um, I had one T cell and I had just gone through the 94 Northridge earthquake. And I had also picked up that whatever it was, the dust from the Northridge stuff and it had congested my lungs and I had pneumocystic pneumonia and I was just a few breaths away from death myself. But it also, you know, there's this respiratory thing connection as well for me between COVID and HIV. Fusion. Um, and in case you don't know, uh, Poolhouse Ed has a has a uh, um, uh, an experience and uh, part of his career in Los Angeles that is very thrilling to me. I'm not going to steal his thunder, but he's we'll call him a creative. He's one of the creatives, truly creatives. And, <laughs> we love um, it. We I, love it. It's total. I I have to really rein all the puppies in when I'm connecting with him because I just want to be a fangirl, and it's very embarrassing. And let's go back um, to uh, to your 18 year old self we appreciate very much the very very human um experience and what you what you've shared with us about your friend i for a long time um did not benefit from buddhist thought and it took uh, many years for me to just just give it a fair shake because I thought it was faith. I thought it was another faith. And I'm like, I don't need another European faith in my life. I just, you know, I'll find my way. Um, but I came back to um, friends who were doing very well, friends who were positive that were thriving, Pat, you know, all the way to the cocktail. You know, we think of 1995 as some landmark, like, thank God for the cocktail. I have, I had a small cache of friends who um, did very well with phytoceuticals. They uh, had very specific testing insights on what they were dealing with in their opportunistic burden, their infectious burden, which today everyone is learning about. The point that I'd like to go back to is your experience then from 79 into the emergence of a full on panic alert in the community. 
whether it be comments about the era, you know, at an anthropological level or any kind of cameos that you want to share right down to the moment like you just did. What do you recall and what do you think is important for people to remember about um, the onset for the community and or the reaction and the treatment and the behavior of others toward the community? Um, What do we need to think about? When I look back at my 18-year-old self and the first emergence amongst the community, and when I say community, I mean the gay community that I was in, there wasn't that much of a fear. Uh, There was still that persona of, oh, this is only going to happen in the big cities, which wasn't true, of course. Um, but it was sort of that with even within the gay community, there was that lack of wanting to accept that this is something we should be dealing with. There was they just wanted to they didn't they didn't want to look at it. They didn't want to see it. They didn't want to hear it. The people that I knew, it was like it, kind of that scenario. If we don't talk about it, it's not going to happen to us. Um, and that's where I think it fell on, on everybody's doorstep. People just didn't want to address it. They didn't want to talk about it. And I think to this day, we still are not addressing it properly. Um, I will keep my own opinions to myself on this unless I'm allowed to say how I feel about prep and you equals you. Um, Please do, Ed, please. I'm not kidding. Like, feel free to express yourself uh, however you feel like it certainly won't offend anybody. I'm really curious, actually. I think it's important to make uh, these connections. um, You know, the, as far as, you know, the you equals you thing, um, when that first became you know, the popular headline uh, recently, um, you know, I was at a conference and I listened to somebody up on the stage and someone raised their hand because we were allowed to ask questions and said, well, what does undetectable mean? He said, oh, well, that's a viral load of 200. Well, a viral load of 200, even by today's standard, is not undetectable. In the 80s and early 90s, when they first came up with the viral load uh, test, um, you know, my highest viral load was Um, (laughs) 98,000. Now, the test is so refined that if I have over 10, replicas, it shows up as a viral load. So the U equals U basing their non-detectable on a viral load of 200, I think is absurd and obscene. And what I have seen where I live now, it truly is not that plain and simple. Um, And Uh, As far as the prep goes, 
I just think it's a pharmaceutical company that has woven their way into a community that they already have captive. And those people that take PrEP, if they do, which more than likely, from my point of view, will become positive, then they're already resistant to some drug. So you're already heading into having HIV with some form of resistance right off the bat if you're taking PrEP. Um, and to me, it, it's 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 sidestepping the issue. And Nick, I know how you are with um, <laughs> your feeling with pharmaceuticals and stuff that it's them lining their pockets. It's not about providing true healthcare for people who really need it. And I believe that that's why they're, I I'll put it, I believe that they have synthesized a cure for HIV, but I don't believe that pharmaceuticals will ever allow it to reach the public because I sometimes say to myself, if I had the millions of dollars they've made off of me <laughs> from feeding me HIV medicine for the last 28 years, that's just me. Because um, when I first started taking HIV meds, I was on Prixivan was the very first one that was specific as far as an ART. And that drug cost was $7,500 a month for one month of Crixivan. And that didn't include all of the other, uh, you know, uh, protease inhibitors, and, you know, the DDI and DD3 and TC, you know, just the litany of acronym drugs, I'll call them, um, that were out there, you know. Um, <clears throat> And I just, where I stand on that is I just think that it's redirecting with, again, misinformation. I'll leave it at that. Thank you for sharing. No, that, I think it's, I think it's important to make those connections. I have similar suspicions, I guess. I don't want to derail us too much, but I think it's important to get that uh, on the record and for people to hear those other perspectives uh, for sure. Um Oh, I don't want to keep uh, pulling us off the side, but I do. I do feel like Ed, I definitely don't feel like you need to hold anything back here for sure. I, I, well, I second that emotion. I kind of isolate myself now. Um, even now, I have very few gay friends from uh, my teen years. Uh, you know, after losing my first friend in '79, by the time I moved from Wichita, which was 1984, um, three more of my friends had passed away with AIDS. Um, and, you know, and moving forward, <laughs> um, just as a part of my story, uh, when I, I used to be a floral designer, I had been floral designer for many years, and I had been at a big, conference in San Antonio, Texas, and I met a gentleman who owned a flower shop in Washington, D.C., and 
he knew I was moving to Atlanta, which I that's I was moving from Wichita to Atlanta, Georgia. And he said, why don't why don't I invite you up for a couple of weeks and you can come to D.C. and we can go to New York City and we can go to Fire Island. And it was his birthday present to me. Uh, so in 1984, uh, when I packed my bags to leave, or I had everything ready and got on a plane and I flew to Washington, D.C., and I met my friend and we drove all night long and arrived in New York City at 3.30 in the morning and went directly to the Saints. Incredible. <laughs> and wow, 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 I am so happy that I got to see that place. Uh, it blew my mind, even in 1984. Um, you know, and of course, there were still, you know, all of the bleachers and all the dark rooms and all the hot, hidden passageways, you know, that were, you know, built outside of the big uh, dome that you danced inside of. <clears throat> It was definitely a fun and crazy scene. And um, uh, then when we went to Fire Island, um, you know, being out on Fire Island, uh, it was noticeable there. I mean, there were people walking the boardwalks that were definitely sick, um, kind of out there trying to get in their last hurrah as you you might say, um, because that's what people were doing at by 1984, 1985. We had seen how rapid it moved, how quickly it consumed our bodies, and how many friends we had already lost even by 1984. The MO at the time was, there's no cure. I'm probably going to die. I'm going to have as much Freaking fun as I can until the moment I exit this earth. And so that's what I got to experience visiting the saint in Fire Island in 1984. You have to keep me on track. Where do you want to go from here? You're, you're good. Just so you know, I'm like a disco historian, I guess. I'll, I'll say it, the amateur disco historian, uh, especially what I'll call disco too, sometimes like the, the 80s period. Uh, so it's really interesting. Thank you for adding that because I think it is important to the cultural uh, like narrative, I guess, of that time. But it's also interesting to me because you're describing kind of this uh, embrace of hedonism, which it makes sense. It feels apocalyptic, like what's happening. Um, which, But there's like this deep irony, right? Because maybe this hedonism that kind of exacerbated this situation to begin with so it feels just uh sort of so tragic so thank you thank you for sharing that uh, absolutely you know i mean like that was the perspective i got you know in 1984 mm -hmm. from doing that traveling and you know being able to go to the saint and fire island and you know witness what used to be you know the absolute heavenly haven for homosexuality um <laughs> and to see how people were actually responding at that time, you know, um, you know, um, you know, and, and moving forward after I moved to Atlanta, um, you know, of course it was much more pronounced then. And by 86, it was, you know, pretty outrageous. There were 
there were already thousands and thousands of people dying. Um, and, you know, you know, being gay and coming out, you know, at the age of, you know, 14, um, you know, I have always like engulfed myself in a gay community. I've, you know, wherever I've lived, I've been in the hub of the gay community. Uh, even I had, you know, I lived in Chicago for a brief time in 1980, um, kind of intermittently. Um, and, you know, the complex I lived in, in Atlanta, um, it was huge. I forget how many, I think 700 apartments and, and townhouses and everything else. And, you know, 97% gay, um, you know, and I remember you know, transitioning, you know, sort of like that almost same feeling as, you know, 84, the Fire Island Saint experience, but we'd actually become even more, oh, I don't know what word to put on it, but um, I'll just tell part of the story. Um, you know, it was a hugely gay complex and you know we were always out hanging around by the pool and how people had numbed themselves to this um you know we would you know we'd be you know a wonderful sunny afternoon in the summer we'd all be out by the pool we'd have our cocktails and you know playing in the pool and music and you know and then we'd hear this big pop and it was like, oh, we definitely know it was a gunshot. So obviously somebody else decided they didn't want to deal with this anymore. And, you know, today we'd call it jaded. And maybe it was. But we would all kind of say, well, I wonder which apartment that was. Because it might be better than the one I'm living in where we had actually numbed ourselves to how many people were dying at that time. Um, and, you know, it, it's odd, you know, that we sort of experienced that, that it, it had just become so everyday that the only coping mechanism was to make light of it as possible. Um, you know, the ones that were fighting, we supported. The ones that didn't want to fight anymore, we supported. Whatever choice the person wanted to make, we let the person make their choice. Um, I did, in that apartment community, um, become a member of a board of a fundraiser, and it was a specific group of people that we had gotten together to organize this and we would throw this big bash once a year and we would raise money. And that money that we would raise would help feed and house the people that were in our apartment community. Um, you know, um, you know, I, I was with that, that group um, for five years, something like that, um, quite involved. I never became president. I was vice president. Um, and when I first joined, I wasn't HIV positive yet, but everybody who was on the board was. And um, 
even at that time, I, I remember sitting at the table and people talking about HIV and what this was about, why we were doing this fundraiser, why we were raising money to help people. You know, I, I clearly said, I, I am here to support, but I personally don't know the experience, but I will do whatever I can to help because that's what I want to do uh, is help. Um, you know, and then I became vice president of the organization, um, more or less the president, because the president didn't like speaking to the press, didn't like doing interviews, didn't like being on TV. So it wound up being me uh, doing all of that. Um, but, you know, the involvement for me, you know, after just seeing, you know, so many deaths at such a young age, 25 years old, and I've already lost 60 friends and or and who knows countless others that were just in the community um, <clears throat> and how to move through that. And that was how I dealt with it and how I thought I could best help at that time. You know, I, and I think a lot of that's gone by the wayside, too, along with, you know, how they're treating HIV today. I was like, oh, take a pill. You'll be fine. You'll live a normal, happy life. Bullshit. You don't. Um, <laughs> I've been positive 35 years. It is not a happy-go-lucky life. Uh, some people, yes, have it easier. Uh, but as you age... And the longer this is in your system and the longer you're taking all these drugs, you know, not only is the HIV wearing on your body, it's all the drugs that you're taking wear on your body in catastrophic ways they have for me. And I know plenty others that it has been too. Um, and even in the last couple of years here in Fort Lauderdale, where I live now, um, I had a friend loved him dearly and he didn't want to face his diagnosis and he didn't take anything and he became ill very quickly and he wound up committing suicide too because he just, it was like he had witnessed so many people and their struggles that he's like, I don't even want to do this. So he took his own life to not have to deal with living with HIV. Would you please uh, reflect on the change in Canadian policy about assisting suicide? And do you have any thoughts on that? Um, if it were legal in the U.S., I probably would have done it by now. Why I'm still here, I don't know. There are plenty of days that I just I'm so exhausted that um, I, I question myself, you know, why have I fought for 35 years to stay alive? Um, I don't know the answer to that yet, but I, you know, I know there are a few states in the United States that uh, allow, well, uh, I forget what the, the technical name, but it's assisted suicide, uh, you know, uh, euthanasia, uh, you know, and physicians, from what I understand in the U.S., don't want to be a part of it. They'll give you the supplies, 
but they don't want to be connected to it firsthand. I think California is one of them. Is Washington State one of them, Nick, that allows assisted um, euthanasia? I think, I think Oregon. I believe Oregon. It's Oregon. Okay. Washington. There's a couple of West Coast that, um, you know, um, uh, but I, I, you know, I think it should be our choice. Um, and, you know, again, we're living in a situation, we're living in times where we don't have much choice over many things. You know, my choice now is I am alive um, and I will continue to take the medications that I need to stay alive. And if at some point I do become completely exhausted, I hope that I get to go peacefully. <laughs> and for me, I would definitely appreciate a program like that being legal in the United States that when I really do get to the point that I truly, truly, truly cannot do this anymore, while I'm still coherent, I want to be able to make that choice. I think that's very important. Um, I know that a younger Nick would have uh, really immediately <laughs> tried to put you in a in some kind of a moral or or ethical framework about that. I don't hear in your opinions, which are very real, and I would say ex you know supremely based <laughs> because of what you're sharing with us. You have walked along the banks of the River Styx already. And with the discussion about the life in that apartment, um, that to me is just uh, truly as, as a, someone who likes to visit the past. Edward, um, think of the USS Relativity when Seven of Nine goes back and uh, collects several different versions of herself <laughs> and uh, tries to uh, un unfurl that problem that they had with that uh, mad captain who plants a, a temporal device. Um, yeah, now you're going on part of my career in L.A. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I'm a space cat, so, you know. I work for a prop house in Los Angeles, and one of the major clients that we had was Deep Space Nine. So I was always at the lot at Paramount, uh, working on the sets and designing props for the show. So I got to be in the movie industry quite a bit when I lived out in Los Angeles. I was a designer for a prop house and it was even though I was you know running around with 19 T cells I was still working my ass off because I loved what I was doing um you know and part of that was you know yes I getting up at three in the morning and going to I can't remember which park it was the same park they filmed uh Fantasy Island in they did one of the Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine uh, episodes and we had to go to the park at three o'clock in the morning and start setting up because filming started at six uh, and we had to have everything prepared for them to start shooting. <clears throat> so, you know, it was fascinating to work in that industry. And, oh, I, I, you know, when I found out that I had, you know, full-blown AIDS and my doctor um, said, you either have to quit work or you're just going to die. 
And it was like, that's much I had one T cell and, you know, my blood gas levels were basically non-existent that I went on disability and I have been on disability ever since. Um, and there again, that's a, a different subject. Uh, but, you know, when I went on disability in uh, 1995, you know, echoing the U, e, U equals U scenario, the um, diagnosis for full-blown AIDS was a viral load of 200. <laughs> and I had definitely passed that viral load. And there again, reflective changes. In 1995, if you had a viral load of 200 and you had very few T cells, you were considered to have full-blown AIDS. And now with recapping on the U equals U, if you have a viral load up to 200, you can't uh, spread HIV to another person. Uh, put those two together for me in your own heads. <laughs> And you can understand why I have my point of view on the U equals U and the prep. Ed, I'm, I'm beaming because there's always a disco element to every episode, and there's always a sci-fi element, I feel like. And so we've, we've hit Well, them. I can give you disco <laughs> and sci-fi out the wazoo. You're a natural. You're a natural for this program. So I'm, I'm very happy to be connected. Um, one thing I wanted to note, uh, you've shared a lot about the death you were surrounded by it's, it's really no other way to say it It was like very tragic you saw a lot of people die and i felt like i, I needed to note that uh that is a big difference from the covid19 experience um that i think is important to call out because i don't know anybody honestly who died of covid19 i know very few people who do know someone who died of that specific illness right there, there were deaths of course i'm not discounting that that fact but in terms of impact and scale uh we were in the mentality, I'd almost say, of, of expecting kind of that kind of same experience, but I don't think it really transpired in the same way. I just kind of wanted to, to speak to that, or I guess call that out a little bit, because I think it's important to make that distinction. They're not exactly the same, right? Oh, no, no. There, I mean, there's similarities in behavior on the perspective of uh, population and government, which is about the same. <laughs> okay, we don't want to deal with it. It's not real. Let's not deal with it. Oh, let's deal with it, but not really deal with it. Uh, and, you know, stepping forward to where we are now today, a another correlation, you know, with HIV and COVID is the outcome is also pretty much the same. Now with COVID, it's pretty much, you're gonna have to get a vaccine every year for the rest of your life because COVID will never go away. Same with HIV. You're gonna have to stay on drugs for the rest of your life because there's nothing that will make it go away. Another correlation, and maybe Nick, you can chime in on this. Uh, you're talking about the, the 
level or the viral loads, kind of these criteria, it, it seems like there's some chicanery, some shenanigans going around with how they frame that. And it very much reminds me of like the PCR testing with, with COVID, where there's maybe um, different kinds of settings, different ways of kind of creating a quote unquote, quote unquote case of COVID-19, you know, through these kind of uh, definitions and, and almost arbitrary. Almost, these aren't consistent. They don't really make sense. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if I'm off the mark there, but that was kind of my impression. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I look at it a little bit higher at more of a systems and protocols level, um, particularly, Ed, I was uh, really felt blessed to meet uh, a nurse from New York City a few months back. And this intersected when I also met uh, Dr. Judith Very Baker of, of the 1960s uh, microbiology and cancer fame. She's featured in the book, uh, Dr. Mary's Monkey by Ed Hoslam. Uh, and it's about uh, one of the special virus cancer program study groups, one of the small project teams at Tulane University. And they work to mutate simian virus 40. Anyhow, um, the, the uh, real lesson that I took from this nurse as she described her experiences working in a large hospital in New York City in the mid 1980s uh, was she was constantly sort of jarred, getting an electric shock uh, in the current day about the way that they kept protocols locked. And as more information has come out in the current state about corruption and incentivization to diagnose as COVID, no matter what it is, because there's money involved in that, uh, and particularly the death diagnosis, that's the most important one, um, and the cash that could be made through the intubation and ventilator process. How you know she was describing how it was just in lockstep, like what she observed on the fifth floor of that hospital. Uh, she was not dealing with the gay men, she was dealing with transfusion patients, patients that were uh, being affected through uh, blood donation and getting yeah, hemophiliacs. That's, yeah. you know, my, that's, to me, that was the bridge of how it got into mainstream society, you know, was through the first noted was through blood transfusion um, from HIV positive people, you know, and then of course, later it did expand through just through uh, sexual promiscuity and crossing the lines and it's you know adding something light it is sort of one of those things uh you know that used to joke about when i was younger is like oh have you slept with so-and-so yeah oh okay then you slept with everybody they slept with <laughs> and in many ways i found uh i mean in my neighborhood when it comes to covid there uh, actually there were two people in my neighborhood that did die with COVID, uh, but a lot of people had tested positive. Even my partner had tested positive for COVID. Um, you know, we live in the same house and we did our distancing and, you know, I, you know, I continued doing my testing and I never became positive for COVID throughout this whole time. So, um, but, you know, it's kind of like that was a thing, if, you know, again, sort of an odd similarity. If you knew somebody that knew somebody that had been around somebody who was positive, you didn't want to be around them. 
um, <laughs> for COVID. Um, and just like, you know, the suspected line with HIV and gay men, it was like, well, if you were with this person, then it's more unlikely that you're going to be HIV positive because so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so are also positive and they were with that person. Um, so don't be surprised uh, kind of thing. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it is a, it's an entangled kind of web and there are similarities, but there are ex absolutely distinctive differences that will, you know, that, there is no comparison in, I would say, 90% of the comparisons between HIV and COVID. Space cat. Yay! <laughs> cool. All right. Did you get a did you get a, a cup of tea, pool house? Well, I actually had to let my boys out, the dogs. They needed to run outside in between the oh. range. Oh, good, good, good. Oh yeah, no, puppy breaks or you gotta you gotta deal with that. So yeah, one of them was standing at the door. He kind of stand here and talks to me a little bit when he's like, I gotta go outside. Ed, what are your thoughts um, on cancer? What would you like to share about that? Um, it's interesting in my history. Um, I'll bring up one point is that, of course, the first thing that they threw at gay men was AZT. And as we all know, that was a drug, cancer drug, that was backshelf and said it was to be prohibited from ever being used again. And of course, we know how effective that was. Moving forward to me, <clears throat> when they finally came out with the first HIV specific drug and to my recollection and what I was told by my doctor, which was the Crixivan, along with all the protease inhibitors. Um, after I had recovered from my pneumonia, and you know, I had, you know, I was sort of the uh, atypical-looking AIDS person at the time. You know, I weighed 125 pounds. I was pale. I was skinny. I was covered with psoriasis and my doctor says, we finally have a drug specific for HIV and I want you to start taking it. And I said, first, I don't have any more left to lose. I'm so skinny. I can barely, you know, I had was barely able to have much strength to do anything. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, you know, 
get me, you know, help me get some weight put back on. <laughs> and, you know, so I did the steroids and the testosterone and all that stuff. And I, you know, worked at the gym and I managed to get my weight up to about 165 pounds. And I said, okay, that's my deal. You put, you help me get some weight back on. Now I will try this Crixivan that you want me to try. A year later, uh, well, let's see. I started the Crixivan in 96. Uh, I would say probably maybe October of 96. And almost a year to the date, oddly enough, um, I noticed some inflammation around uh, my anal area. And so I went to see a um, dermatologist, which then sent me to a specialist. And at that time, you know, they were still labeling diseases or associated diseases differently for people who were positive than they were for the general public. And what they called my cancer was Bowen's disease, which was basically a version of squamous cell cancer. It just happened to develop around the outer tissue of my anal area. Mm -hmm. And when I think of that, I think, okay, here I am recovering from pneumonia. I'm finally taking an HIV medication. And then I wind up with some odd form of cancer. <laughs> um, you know, and at that point it was like, uh, they gave me three options. It was like, well, you can either do um, chemotherapy, uh, we can do some transfusions of some sort, or the most harsh and possibly the most effective would be doing direct injections of interferon into the cancerous cells. And I was only at like stage one. Um, uh, and at that point, the doctor said, there's only a couple of things that's going to happen here. It's either going to kill you or it's going to kill the cancer. We hope it kills the cancer and not you. Um, but 12 weeks, three times a week, getting 3 million units of interferon injected into my body. Um, you know, I, you know, I, we did eliminate the cancer, but I just find it interesting, you know, that the first thing they threw at the HIV positive community was AZT, which was what's a cancer based drug. And then, you know, my, train of thought was, well, they must be basing it on the same thing because also in the early advertisements or, you know, I call advertisements, uh, literature or things, it was like, it was called the gay cancer, you know, because it was Kaposi's sarcoma. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, taking a new HIV medicine, I think was possibly based on the same idea as what AZT was, but just um, you know, reconfigured in the lab somehow. Um, but to the point, you know, that almost to a year, almost to the day, the year after taking the first HIV ART, 
that I wound up having cancer too. Well, one um, very interesting aspect of what I see in the materials from the Special Virus Cancer Program, which ran officially from 1964 until 1977 and was hailed by Nixon as the war on cancer. And as we look closely at it, we find that that was a storefront for a great deal of biowarfare early gain of function work that at the time was called recombinant DNA technology. So the aspect that I'm referring to uh, is that they, they did learn a great deal about cancer. Uh, oh, yeah. The end of the program, there just seemed to be this kind of big shrug. And I, I was a little kid, so it wasn't on my radar at the time. But as I go back and look at the press and how they treated the completion of this 17-year program, um, they're like, well, there's, there's still a lot of questions. We didn't really learn how to fix it. And at the same time, really, it appears that they were a fencing operation for all of this mess that they had created with vaccinology based on animal tissues and materials that, that brought a huge catalog of diseases into public health uh, that weren't there before. Now, I'm talking about raw transfer, primarily Ed, from primate materials. So we're talking about herpes viruses, an unknown number of uh, strange and exotic things uh, uh, like mycoplasma, uh, and then, of course, the oncogenic uh, primate viruses like SIV, HIV, and SV40, among others. Um, so that was that's what it appears to be is that they they basically took over the apparatus of pathology and replaced specific words like uh, the example I give in the timeline at the beginning all the time is how they changed chimpanzee coriza agent and they gave it a new designation of respiratory syncytial virus and if you turn on the television right now you'll see ads trying to scare seniors over 60 into taking an rsv vaccine wow. yes guess what we introduced respiratory syncytial virus, a chimpanzee contaminant that is endemic for them and doesn't seem to cause a problem. But in us, it's one of the leading causes of pneumonia death. Uh, and we we contaminated the population and continued to do it for years by using primate cell lines. And now we're trying to act like it's an endemic human disease and we're going to fight it with another vaccine. So that's where, unfortunately, our rise as a community are galvanizing and finally having a voice in a newspaper and a city, you know, having Harvey Milk and whatnot. Um, unfortunately, uh, as we were also deregulated, we were delisted as being mentally ill. Um, it, it seemed to be a perfect storm and put us in the crosshair.
pool house. <laughs> Please take it away. I've been running know. the mouth. No, no, that was important. Um, I think what actually what question I wanted to ask, Ed, uh, you uh, shared with us like your experiences from 79. It's earlier than the official timeline. Uh, you've indicated there was a knowledge amongst populations that there was something going on with the, with the gay community. There's not right eventually like a official timeline comes together, right? You have the, the book and the band later on, like, you know, the narrative starts to form, right? How did that feel? Do you remember like a feeling of disconnect? Do you remember feeling suspicious about the way that the official history was being packaged up versus your own experiences and what you saw? Oh, absolutely. I, I thought that what was packaged up and presented was rose-colored glasses you know that's how they wanted us to see it that's what they wanted to persuade the population to believe about this disease and i just immediately felt so uh disconnected with uh, um i'll use the word phony it just, again, it was propaganda at a different level. Um, for me, it was it was like even getting into when they started making movies about HIV and stuff. It's, <laughs> on some degree, yes, it helped for more people to hear about it. Um, but on the other hand, it wasn't helpful for those of us affected buy it another one of my experiences which is you know interesting I, it's after i'll briefly include this part of the story when i was when my doctor said you have pneumonia more likely you're going to die ed you need to go to la county hospital and i said absolutely not and he says well you'll have to sign these waivers releasing me from any responsibility if you happen to die i said gladly and I signed all of the release forms because I had been to L.A. County Hospital. And it was so overpacked at the time that the hallways on both sides were lined with gurneys with patients in them. So there was absolutely no capacity at the hospital to have any more patients. And I thought, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die at home. <laughs> um, and so... I'm not very connected with my family. <clears throat> um, you know, hence, uh, my mother and father have both passed, a sister has passed. I had a ton of friends in Los Angeles, and they all said, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? And, you know, my response is just like, just bring me whatever you love whenever you don't feel good. So I did have a house full of just fabulous stuff. Anyway, I called... Um, uh, well, so let's put this backwards. Sorry. My mother called me, which was a rare occasion. And I will put this in preference. She dealt with mental illness her whole entire life. And um, she called. I was, you know, in the bathtub, 90% covered in psoriasis and pain, you know, and pneumonia. And, you know, just trying to pull through it. And my mother said, um, I just want to call you and tell you how fabulous my life is. And I said, Mom, I really don't give a shit. I'm about to die because I have AIDS. And I hung up the phone on her. <laughs> um, I'll give you the full thing. I said, I have AIDS and I hope I never see you again. And I hung up on her. Um, well, 
over the next couple of days, my brother and my sisters called and their question was, okay, we're calling because do you really have AIDS or is mom crazy? Um, which I thought was an interesting thing. In the end, I decided to go and visit my parents because I thought it would be the last time I would see them, which was in 96. And when I entered the, and when, you know, my dad picked me up at the airport, you know, he met me inside the terminal and he came up to me and he had tears in his eyes. And I said, why are you crying, dad? And he says, um, you look like you always look. Because when I was younger, I was always skinny. Uh, <laughs> so me being 125 pounds, I just looked like I always did to him, considering that, you know, I had, you know, managed to become 185, almost 190 pounds kind of bodybuilder person before, you know, HIV took that all away and AIDS. Uh, but one of his first questions to me was, is it safe to have you in the house? And I just thought, wow, if that's the message the general public is getting from this, this is really scary. That my father, through the information that was being presented through media and news and newspapers, that's he still wasn't sure how easy this could be transferred to another person. And it's not that easy. Um, but I was pretty crude with my dad. And I said, well, dad, basically I'd have to shove a bottle up your ass and break it and fuck you and come inside of you. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of blatant with my dad. It's like, I don't care at this point, but and he, you know, said, he said, I've been to that bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, which interesting in that conversation, I learned something about my father that I never knew. Um, why he never had a problem with me being gay is when he was in the army in the 50s, he had told me during this visit that he had noticed there were men that were different in the military and he didn't like the way the other soldiers treated them. And my father had actually become sort of a barrier between the gay people and the people that were being bullied, that were bullying them. So my father, during the Korean War, when he was in the army, he was sort of a, a, he was the defense system for gay people in the military. And I never knew that until that year in my life. And I thought, it's an interesting, here I am almost going to die. And I'm finally learning something about my father and why he had such compassion and didn't have an issue with me being gay. Um, it was you know, just the whole thing about the HIV, but it was like, I just blew it out there. It's like, that's the only way you're going to get a dad. And he's like, okay, fine. You know, um, <laughs> um, but you know that, but that's how that, how the messaging came across to the greater America to me is, you know, that's what the general public saw, what my father believed. How scared should I be about being around somebody who's got HIV or AIDS? Am I going to get it? Uh, that the messaging was so vague that nobody knew. 
And, you know, so when you when you ask about what do I think about how they presented stuff, it was like it was so vague that and I still think it's quite vague today that people don't really get the depth and the concept of how this is spread. I think people still believe it's, you know, kind of like, oh, my God, if I sit on the same toilet seat, am I going to get it? Um, you know, it has to be truly a a bodily fluid connection. <laughs> um, somehow getting into the bloodstream is the only way you're going to get HIV, you know, that people don't realize that today. I still think people are lost with that. Do you think that, Ed, there's um, beyond maybe just a couple of folks, but do you think that there's uh, enough information in what I've gathered that I could re-engage particularly the HIV positive, uh, you know, long-term survivors and and people in connected through the support networks? Do you think that this is something that um, is meaningful Will it be cathartic? Will it be healing? Will it be re-traumatizing? So what what do you for think? Me, Is me, there anything? I would, I would engage in it and I would want to see it take hold and get some footing to move forward. Uh, but one thing that I do see with the few people that I do know that are also long-term and when I say long term, I mean, I want to see people similar to me, 35 years, 25 years, at least 20 years that have actually lived long enough to understand how this disease and the drugs, what they do to your body <laughs> as you age. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, so you're dealing with a narrower market now than I think that you would otherwise because i think the younger people and i will say younger people meaning 45 and younger sure. probably don't give a shit we're in the age of pill popping it's another pill what's what's another pill a day yeah yeah so it's it would be very difficult i think you could um internationally mm -hmm. gain ground with this but i don't know how much you would be able to crack the shell of the people uh so many that i know that are long-term survivors that are still in sort of denial themselves you know in mm. and what i mean by that is uh i don't feel this way but i know people that do that it's like i guess i'm living a pretty normal life if i continue to take the drugs so I'm not going to identify or I'm not going to tell anybody that I'm positive anymore because I'm really being able to present a normal life. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's dangerous and sad. And so I don't know that you would really reach a lot of people. You'd reach me. Uh, I'll have to think about it. Uh, I don't want to bring something that is damaging. Um, for me, what I, what I remain... I'm hopeful about is that it will be healing for someone who feels a, that moral that they have accepted the pill they're in the matrix and they believe 
that this was from God or that somehow our, our morality or our sexual orientation brought this upon us. That's who I want to heal. I don't want to hurt other people on the way to getting to those few folks that would connect with it that way. So I'll give it I, more. I think it would be, um, sorry to interrupt. It, no, would please, be, please. it would be in the way you present it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and as I said, when I lived in Los Angeles, I, and again, I can't remember the name of the group, but we met uh, at some park, it had a big stadium kind of indoor building on Santa Monica Boulevard. And it was uh, people that, uh, you know, quote unquote, were conspiracy theorists, you know, in talking about that HIV was definitely um, put into the gay community as a way to eliminate homosexuality. And, you know, the auditorium was packed. I would go once a week and there'd be 300 people there. Um, (laughs) There has to be some of those people just like myself still around that it would reignite that, okay, somebody's gonna talk about it again, I'm ready to chime in. And I think, it, it's possible for you to be able to put something together, present it, and have it be like, you know, uh, lighting the so, fire light, yes. you know, and starting a fire up in people that have become passive about this disease in their lives, that, you, you, you know, you might regain some people's faith in fighting. Well, the sad thing is, is that everybody could have had this answer in 1997 if they'd bought Horowitz emerging viruses. They, they, everything, all the substance of what I have audited, because I've just done a 25 year actuarial accounting and taught myself the language and some of the basics of viral oncology, uh, lab stuff, uh, genetics, uh, and clearly uh, relationships that they mapped out between pathogens and disease states. That's all I did was was give myself a little country education on on different disciplines. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse even. Um, but I what I did in that path was learn it from the layman's perspective. And I think uh, there's high confidence that everything that was cited in Horowitz is absolutely independently substantive and verifiable. Um, And it can be reduced because I think his book is, uh, I don't know, four to 600 pages. It's huge. looks like the Bible. Yeah, Uh, It can be reduced down to 30 minutes in ways that are so raw and clear and approachable by someone that has never opened up one of those those peer review papers, um, that it can be put in language that um, penetrates and is meaningful and then gives everyone all of the fine detail. There is no club, there's no subscription, there's no book, it's just here. It's an open source. Um, so I, I'm, I'm certainly prepared to do that because that's 100%. a good format. Okay. Well, well, full house. I have a question. What else would you like to know about me? (laughs) Well, I I, let's do like I have one question actually. Yeah, Uh, 
something that's been coming up a lot actually that i've been thinking about is this, <laughs> this idea of the um i guess maybe the homosexual male's ability to use humor to fight in the face of scary things i see it in you ed you've used humor at times you talked about it at the in the, the heaviest parts of the aids crisis that you know you it's a coping mechanism, sure, but it's. I think it's an effective one, and I don't think it should be discounted. I think it's uh, maybe a talent. <laughs> maybe that the gay men maybe even have uh, better or could do better maybe in some ways than others or have had to learn to do better than others. And I think there's something to that, I think, and what Ed was saying in terms of being able to get this content to people. And I think humor is definitely a strategy that we can uh, take advantage of and use to get. That's kind of my, my strategy anyway with my program and stuff. I can't be a little irreverent at times. I can be a little off the charts or off the wall because you do have to, to a degree, launder this information to people. And so that's one inspirational thing I've taken away from, from this evening. I want to tell you something, I want to say one thing I've learned from you this evening, besides just like the, the details of your life is just, even you inspired me. And I think this should be called out that you, there were so many times probably in your life where it seemed like it, the end was near and that you probably wanted to give up or, or, or wish you could give up and you didn't. And I'm I'm thankful and very glad that you did not do that, that you are still here, that you were able to meet with, with Nick and I this evening. And I think that's an important thing to call out because times are not always going to be so easy. And, and you kept fighting, you kept pushing. That's inspiring to me. Um, and also just that you... <laughs> You took in new information as information came about and you adjusted your course, right? You didn't just kind of stick in the same lane of thought. What was that like? What was your journey into kind of like quote unquote HIV truth or or, or conspiracy theories for lack of a better term? I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll give you like the nitty gritty of how I became positive and a little story to begin. Sure, with, sure. Uh, if it's okay. Um, I was a member of the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus, so singing was also a big part of my life and after a performance one night when i you know finally had gotten to the level where they let me do solos at performances i had a couple of gentlemen approach me and said we're doing a play and it's called different and it's about being different being gay uh and the aids crisis and i auditioned and i got a part and it was, you know, from, you know, being kids in grade school to growing up to having a relationship and, you know, the two lead characters, one of them dies with AIDS. Um, and it was huge. People cried at the end as well as the cast. You know, you know, we had a very small theater, so there were 120 people crying every performance. Um, but that gave me a lot of exposure. I had a ton of people approach me after that. And at that point, I wasn't HIV positive. Um, I, you know, I had been published in Torso Magazine and Advocate Men and things like that. So I kind of was out there. Um, but it also brought up on how I became positive. A person who I later found out um, <laughs> in the backwash. Um, it was one of the afternoons of the pool at that co apartment complex in Atlanta. And, you know, it was like, oh, I said, I'll go up to my apartment. I'll get refresh stuff for us. And there was a guy there that uh, said, oh, do you mind if I come up and help? And I said, sure, because I can always use a couple of extra hands. Well, he wound up attacking me and raping me, and that's how I became infected with HIV. Um, and 
how I knew for certain that it was him was the year later when I had to go to Mercy Hospital in Atlanta I had to get a T-cell count and you know, all that stuff, you know, what they wanted to do for follow-up after I tested positive. Um, I'm sitting in the chair and in walks the guy that raped me. He was a nurse at the hospital. And at that time, they didn't have all the plastic vials that they do now for blood and stuff. And he literally turned as white as, as his coat dropped the tray and ran out of the room screaming, somebody else has to go in and deal with this person. I went, holy shit. And then I started questioning people and they said, oh yeah, he's got this real anger issue. And I think he saw you in that play. Um, you know, I don't, I don't blame the play, but it was interesting that there was somebody that had so much anger about being HIV positive that his way of taking care of his anger was apparently I was not the only person that he attacked and raped. Um, so that's how I became positive. But even after that, it's like, you know, uh, Nick had mentioned earlier about, you know, his, I'll call it spirituality. You know, I had already been, my spirituality was already kind of intact. Uh, I was in science of mind. I wasn't in your baseline religion um, stuff. And, you know, so Louise Hay, when she came out with all of her stuff, it was like, yeah, I've already heard all of that. You know, and for many people, that was unfortunately too late, but it was hope. Uh, but through having something within myself that gave my, that I gave to myself as a sense of person, a sense of self-value, um, you know, at that point, it was, it was my spirituality. And, you know, when I uh, tested positive, you know, I gave myself five years. I said, you know what? I think I have it more together. I'm healthier. I work. I don't eat crap. I'm not a drug addict. I don't go partying horribly. I mean, I, yes, I went out and I danced and I had fun, but I wasn't, you know, I was, fortunately, I've never had any addiction problems to, to you know, at all. But, you know, I enjoyed my life. Uh, but so I said, you know, I think I probably have my stuff together pretty well. And I give myself five years. So basically, I set myself a five-year plan. I, you know, I, I bought a new vehicle that I would be paid off in five years. And, you know, I moved across country and you know, I wound up in L.A. And I was 27. It was 1988 when I was raped. And... It was not until 1995 that it got to the point where it almost killed me. Um, you know, so it was just, I, I say this, you know, because I go, I, I see a therapist. Of course, I think that's healthy for anybody to see a therapist. And he said, what is it? He asked me a question. He says, why do you think you have survived so long? I said, because I'm tenacious. <laughs> and so his challenge, I ha I, there's, I write poetry. So, and um, um, so I had to write two poems about tenacity and something else um, <laughs> that I thought were the basis of how I uh, learned to survive. Um, uh, so I had already kind of 
I think I had a step ahead of a lot of people who had just thrown away everything and all it was was just the sex and the, and the clubs and and the gay life and that was what it was. I always had more in my life than most of the people I knew. And actually how I was introduced to science of mind as I was at a party and I was talking and they said, well, what do you believe? And I said, well, I really don't believe in God, but I believe there's some kind of presence. And they said, well, what do you mean? And we started talking he says, have you ever heard of science of mind? And I said, no. And they said, oh, you should go hear him, you know? Uh, and I said, okay. Because they said, you sound you sound like you could be one of, you know, a minister for them. And for a while it worked. Um, and, but when, you know, I after I became positive and I went to, they had an HIV positive group. Um, and one of the uh, ministers in training was heading the group. And we had to do this affirmation of, I love my HIV and I accept it, it is part of me. And I said, if we're supposed to be here with the state of mind that we have the power to heal ourselves, then why do we affirm our HIV status? <laughs> that didn't set very well. And needless to say, I left the group and I began my gradual disassociation with most religious or spiritual teachings. And I now just kind of have my own flow with that. But to me, that's been just having a sense of self to begin with, I think was um, a lot more than a lot of gay men did. Um, you know, as I said, and probably the, the pro in that was that, you know, I wasn't rejected by my mother and father, you know, that my father totally accepted me. You know, it was like, with I said, my mother was mentally ill and she would, when she wasn't in the hospital in lockup ward, she would be home and she would start a fight. And one evening she started one of her fights and she screamed to my dad, Holden, do you know your son's a homosexual? And my dad says, yeah, what about it? <laughs> you know, and I would go to the clubs you know, and I would come home at 3.30 in the morning and my dad would go to work at four o'clock in the morning and I'd bring home some boy and my dad would say, hey, how are you guys? Do you want to have breakfast? And I said, I don't know. Well, you guys have a good night. You know, that I never had that rejection aspect in my life. So um, that was, that's a, you know, something that I think the majority of, you know, anybody LGBTQ don't necessarily have that in their life. And that, you know, here I was, you know, a 14 year old kid and being able to say I'm gay and my dad saying, okay, <laughs> that I was more comfortable. I, I had the ability to be more comfortable in my skin than I think most did.
Well, Ed, that was... <laughs> I fucking love you, Ed. That's what I was thinking when I was uh, listening to you speak. There were so many lessons in uh, what you just shared there uh, that I couldn't here on for, for hours. I think one thing I will say is it's interesting to me that uh, I think you're so right about this lack of uh, awareness of self. It's very important for for everyone, you know, not just of obviously LGBT people. Everyone needs to have that grounding. But I, yeah, yeah. And I, you're totally right that, that there's this like, lost voice kind of uh, mentality almost or kind of uh, characteristic uh, amongst uh, you know, gay men in particular. I think that that's not uncommon. Um, but what I see happening, where I get into trouble with the, the the gay movement of today, is I see it almost like a religion. I see it becoming a substitute for religion in many ways, with its own affirmations, its own kind of narratives, and, and just you know, dogma, really, in a lot of ways. So it's interesting to me that you kind of have this experience where you kind of pushed, uh, you, you didn't really vibe with that kind of synthesis of like religion and, and identity, which I think is like even more uh, more what that movement or that, that culture is about now than ever before in, in many ways. I share your kind of repulsion, I think in a sense to not, maybe not exactly the same thing, but what you experienced there is something I see all around us now. So I think that was, that was powerful. Um, yeah. Thank you, Ed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's, I mean, it, it it's, it's, uh, well, you know, it's like, when I first moved to Florida, I moved to Miami Beach, you know, and again, it was kind of like the second resurgence, um, you know, there was, you know, there were a lot of men, a few of them that were fortunate enough that had life insurance policies, and they sold their life insurance policies to viatical companies and took whatever payout they could. And so in the mid 90s, they were, you know, going to places like New York City and Miami Beach and the white party and all this stuff. And just, you know, again, it was that loop of. Again, if I'm going to die, I'm going to go out with a bang and, you know, the drug scene and the parties and the craziness um, that, you know, went along with it. And, you know, and some of the people I Again, I, I know very few people, even from that period, um, you know, just were so lost because, oh, shit, now what do I do? I'm on disability. I sold my insurance. Uh, I partied my ass off. I'm still alive. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's like I think there's a lot of lost people in the HIV, long-term HIV community. Uh, and I think a lot of people, you know, what I see here, I think a lot of them go into hiding. Um, and sorry, this just popped into my mind. The Reunion Project, Nick, is the group that deals with uh, long-term HIV people. And you might reach out to them to address this because they're always kind of inviting people in to talk about what can we learn? What can we move forward with? How can we gain a resurgence to fight for our lives? Uh, and it's called the Reunion Project. Okay. And they're you. always issuing stuff and they're doing anybody, you know, you don't have to be positive. You don't have to be, if you want to get on their mailing list, you can look them up and you can always get invited to their meetings and maybe, you know, voice your yourself there and see if it could be welcomed into that atmosphere yeah and i it's the the problem is it's it's a little bit like rolling um a bowling ball down the alley um i'm 
I, I, it come it comes back to that trepidation, that calculus that I struggle with. Uh, it's, Getting that's your stuck in the ball. Uh, well, no, no, it's about it's about the effect on the pins. That's what I. Ah. It's like I. The ball is polished and it's heavy and it's ready to roll. It's about what's going to happen to the pins. So, um, I again, I will I will approach um, that organization uh, respectfully and carefully and see. Um, and are you connected? Have you contributed something to their project? Uh, yeah. I mean, over. I mean, you know, through COVID, um, when that's all we could do was be on our computers. Um, uh, yeah, I would, I would uh, do, I would join their Zoom invitations and talk with them on their subjects of stuff, you know, and, um, you know, I think one of the la- latest ones they talked about was, you know, how are aging, long-term HIV positive people dealing with life? How are we surviving? What is it, what are we doing to continue to thrive the best we can you know, with our age and being long-term, you know, so they really do address, um, you know, that's kind of their focus is they're, they're wanting to see what are people doing? How are we, how are we working with this? How can we reinvigorate this fight that some of us, you know, and I say some of us, there's part of me that, yes, you know, it's just like, what can I do? I personally can't change it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Why fight? But there's still reason to fight. Well, I, I hope you understand how much the two of us um, uh, appreciate you. I'd like to say I love you. I've never met you. I've never shaken your hand. So, uh, you know, I, I love you as a being. And I well, am so yeah, appreciative. I, I love you too. I mean, it's like, and full house nick and i have been kind of going back and forth with trying to reconnect and i think this has been um i mean thank you really both of you for giving me the opportunity to share what i have uh this this evening and and to me it's just a fraction of what i've really gone through in my life as a gay man and HIV and my experience, you know, and I too, I feel sometimes like I really wish I had the ability to have a louder voice, a broader audience, because I think for myself, I believe that being a long-term survivor myself, I could be empowering to people that have wanted to put this on the shelf you know i still don't want to put it on the shelf i still fight for it i still fight against things arguments you know sometimes i just have to like stop um you know because people are so they want to be in the blinded area they don't want to they don't want to see they don't want to hear they don't want to know i'm okay i'm I'm, I'm okay and okay is not enough for me i don't want to be just okay and you know one of the things i do feel sometimes is yes i'm alive i'm physically alive my heart's beating thank goodness my brain is still working um but there's a part of me that i don't feel like i am fully living um you know and that's a kind of a different story but it's like you know i would love to be able to somehow 
I don't mean to leave a big legacy, but you know, um, maybe with your podcast and this, it might reach people, you know, hoping that my words, my experience, my story, even what little I shared tonight may help people feel okay about sharing their stories. Mm -hmm.